Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started listening to us, thank you very much for putting us on. We're on Instagram and Twitter at IT Women's Podcast. And you can send us an email on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. If there's anything you want us to cover on the podcast or if you have any comments on this episode or previous ones. Today, we are going to be talking to the brilliant Emma Dabbery about beauty standards in this Zoomified, social media obsessed world that we inhabit. In the past, you wouldn't be having a conversation with another person while simultaneously looking at your own face. And there is a process called Zoomification that became most pronounced in the pandemic where this type of communication was our kind of primary means or method of communication. More from Emma Dabbery on beauty in a moment. But before that, sad news broke today that Shane McGowan from the Pogues has died. What an amazing, unique talent. And I was thinking today, as I was reading all the pieces about uh, the time I met him once, a great night out with him and the love of his life, Victoria Mary Clark, who is an extraordinary woman. And all I remember about that night is sitting in a bar, laughing, almost crying, laughing with Shane. He was really funny. He was incredibly smart and brilliant company. I remember we were playing some kind of complicated card game that Shane was brilliant at. And I'm thinking of Victoria and all of Shane's friends and family. What a loss to Ireland he is, to to Irish music. And I just wanted us to play a little clip of him singing one of my favourite songs that he sings, Rainy Night in Soho. What a great writer and storyteller he was. Roll it there, JJ. Rainy Night in Soho. Now the song is nearly over We may never find out what it means. So goodbye, Shane McGowan. And I also wanted to mention a story this week in the Irish Times by Circa Pollock, which brought the news that any person experiencing or at risk of domestic violence is now entitled to take five fully paid days of leave from work under new legislation, which comes into force this week. Under the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Provisions Act 2023, which is a bit of a mouthful, employers will be legally required to offer up to five days of paid leave over a period of 12 months to employees affected by domestic violence, including coercive control or where an employee is supporting their spouse, partner or child who is the victim. The state was one of the first countries in the EU to introduce this right to paid leave, said Minister for Equality Roderick O'Gorman on Monday. No one experiencing domestic violence should have to risk poverty or unemployment in order to seek support, he said. 
He added that domestic violence leave is not just about the leave. It can start conversations in workplaces and society around domestic violence and raise awareness. Employers have a crucial role to play and I would encourage them to use the supports which have been developed to create a safe space for employees experiencing domestic violence. A bit of more of the detail of it. The leave can be taken without prior notice to the employer and can be used to access help from Angarda Siakona to source alternative accommodation, to get a court order or seek medical attention or to go to victim services organisations or even to get counselling, according to a statement from the department. And the minister has previously said that a person requesting the leave would not have to provide any evidence of the abuse, which is a deliberate decision to make access to the paid leave as easy as it possibly can be. And there's a dedicated website now, www.dvatwork.ie. That's www.dvatwork.ie, which provides employers with essential information on supporting a victim of domestic violence, including information around the importance of total confidentiality and a clear definition of domestic violence. And Women's Aid have written a guidance note and they encourage employers to clearly communicate to their staff the availability of domestic violence leave and to include information on the policy in the organisation's employee handbook. Women's Aid will also be holding a series of webinars which are now open for registration. So if you go to the Women's Aid website, all the details will be there. And those are for all employers providing advice and information on domestic violence policies. So that's good news for for people in that situation that you can now discuss it at work and expect support, which hasn't been the case in the past. So a good development there. Now, Emma Dabry, as many of you know, is an Irish Nigerian academic, author and broadcaster. She's the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, What White People Can Do Next and of the brilliant Don't Touch My Hair. In 2023, she was appointed as a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and she's presented several television and radio programmes, including BBC Radio 4's critically acclaimed documentaries, Journeys into Afrofuturism and Britain's Lost masterpiece. She's also a columnist at The Guardian now writing on areas of Irish interest. But I got her on the podcast to speak to her about Disobedient Bodies, an unmissable radical essay, which is all about reclaiming your unruly beauty. In it, Emma asks, what part of your beautiful self were you taught to hate? And reflects on how we spend a lot of time trying to improve our defects according to society's ideals of beauty. But these ideals are often reductive and commercially entangled, imposed upon us by oppressive systems and further strengthened by our conditioned self-loathing. Disobedient Bodies encourages unruliness, which is something we love on this podcast, and explores the ways in which we can rebel against and subvert the current system, ultimately finding the inherent joy in our disobedient bodies. Emma and I had a really interesting chat which covered her upbringing in Dublin, her own view on those social beauty constructs and how our social media obsessed world has made it increasingly challenging for younger women, particularly to break out of those tyrannical beauty standards. The book's opening line is, we're obsessed with our appearances, but how many of us like the way we look? I began by asking Emma a huge question, one I think we've all pondered now and again. Why is how we look such a massive issue for women? I mean, that is a huge question. I feel there are kind of like trite, superficial like answers, but that question is really what I was trying to answer in writing the book. I wanted to like more fully understand 
why that is the case. Let's go back to you as a teenager growing up and those lovely rituals that you had um, with your friends getting ready for a night out when it was a lot based on what you would wear and, and your makeup. But there was a real bonding in that. It was a very, you know, lovely experience between you and your friends. And that was a positive aspect of you know, the sort of grooming with each other almost. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it was lovely. (laughs) To be honest, like I open Disobedient Bodies with this scene of getting ready to go to a disco, you know, with like a group of school friends when we're like probably like 15 or so. And it's like the mid 90s. And I'm definitely highlighting like the positives of it. There was a lot that I loved about it at the time. And especially like looking back, I can see the importance of those kind of spaces and the fact that they are significant in a way that um, I don't think is really acknowledged or like kind of properly understood. At the same time, like while there was this kind of like bonding and like sociability and, you know, you'd help each other get ready and stuff. And there were aspects to that that were really kind of like about like sorority and like friendship and stuff. They were also underscored with like kind of comparison and competition. Well, you know, so there were multiple things going on. And I think the book really in many ways is about how do we liberate our beauty culture from the more kind of like tyrannical and oppressive aspects or characteristics that exist and have more emphasis on the joyful kind of communal aspects of like sorority that also occupy, yeah, that that space. So less pitching women against each other in terms of that competition that you describe. And it's interesting because this idea of women not liking themselves or always being under scrutiny and having to present themselves in a certain way has been with us for millennia. I mean, it's been with us for a long time. But you you write really brilliantly in the book about the pressures that are on young women today, particularly, and this constant need to post about ourselves online and the selfie culture and all the things going on on Instagram. This surveillance aspect adds a whole new new layer to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. So um, like I write, we are constantly under surveillance or under scrutiny. And it's not just I will speak about the kind of scrutiny of others, but it's also the scrutiny of ourselves by ourselves. So, you know, even in this moment now, we're on Zoom and we can both see our faces. So you're communicating with somebody else. You're having a conversation with another person, but you are also aware of your own image being broadcast in a way that is highly unusual, in a way that's very recent, you know. In the past, you wouldn't be having a conversation with another person while simultaneously looking at your own face. And there is a process called Zoomification that became most pronounced in the pandemic where this type of communication was our kind of primary means or method of communication. And um, after lockdown ended, the rates of cosmetic surgery, like went through the roof, went sky high. And one of the contributing factors to that is the fact that people had just become so, so, so aware of their faces with a kind of degree of forensic detail that is like previously unknown. So people became super aware of their quote unquote flaws or their, or their defects from looking at their faces um, to this kind of like un- unprecedented degree. So we have that going on. We also have with selfies, um, 
you know, when I was a teenager, I wasn't aware of, I was very, very conscious of how I looked and very, very self-conscious. And we were very much judged on our physical appearance. But you personally didn't know your face with the same level of specificity that we would now like from selfies. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I wouldn't, I just have such a more of a familiarity. And I feel like with that, more of a sense of what would be perceived as imperfections, you know, like thankfully for me, that's come at an age where I'm equipped to deal with that. But I think if that had been the case in my teens, I would have been even more of a mess than I was. So then we have that kind of degree of self-surveillance. And then of course, you just have this huge pool of people and this kind of relentless and infinite images of quote unquote flawless perfection that you are not only comparing yourself to, but that you are being compared against. And, you know, social media is a landscape where people are, it's based on, you know, kind of likes and engagement and shares. And so much of that in that kind of visual space, so much of that is determined by by one's appearance. You mentioned your teenage years there and being a mess. And I think we'd all look back in our teenage <laughs> years and feel like we were a bit of a mess. But as a young black woman growing up in Dublin, which was not as diverse as the Dublin that we know now, which is still, you know, completely different. I mean, it must be when you come back, it's a completely different place to what you grew up in. So what was that like? What layers did that add for you in terms of um, your perception of yourself and, and other people's perception of you? What did you have to deal with? as a young woman, being so-called different, and I'm putting that in quotes, but... uh... Yeah, I mean, I think, like, that had a huge impact. There was quite, like, a narrow beauty standard, um, I guess, but there was also, like, a beauty standard that was, like, very oppressive for everybody in that I think one of the kind of prevailing and most dominant um, characteristics of it was to be like very, very, very thin, to be like very skinny. And that is hugely significant and meaningful. I think it really emerges from like a deeply patriarchal culture where women's bodies need to be like controlled and disciplined. And it's kind of an embodied manifestation of this idea that you don't really occupy too much space and you make your body as insubstantial as possible with the exception of of uh, those kind of like explicit markers of femininity you know the one place you were like the one place that where there could be flesh as i write in the book was boobs you could have you could have big tits but that was about it and you could also have like, well, also the the beauty standard was very much, you know, to have like long hair. So those explicit markers of a particular type of femininity, they could be bigger, you know, but with everything else, the the ideal was to kind of like diminish yourself as as much as possible. Um, so that was, you know, something that that everybody was experiencing. But I think like for me, like the kind of features that I have because my my father is Nigerian were ones that were like, they were definitely like outside of the beauty standard. And even like with my body shape, like I felt very, very like self, like I feel like, I felt like everything, I was told that everything about me was like too big, like from 
my mouth, my lips, my bum, everything was just like too big in a society where you had to be as small as possible. But that also was underpinned by, um, you know, very potent stereotypes that existed about like sexuality and the sexuality of black people and this idea that like um, black girls or like black women were, you know, kind of easy. So there was this very like, kind of explicitly sexualized aspect to it as well. So all of my features that were perceived as too big, also like a lot of the language that people would use around describing them was very sexualized. So it was very, it was really difficult to um, navigate that as like a 14 or 15 year old, Um, especially when nobody else I knew. So everybody was, everybody was kind of um, under the, boot of these oppressive kind of beauty standards, but with the aspect of racism that also like accompanied my experience, I didn't have anybody that was going through anything similar or really kind of like any advice or um, sense of how I could, how I could um, deal with that, how I could make, how I could make sense of it. So it was confusing. And then also we were conditioned to believe that like attention from men, attention from boys was like, you know, the goal. And so if you were getting that, that was something that you were expected to kind of be like, kind of like grateful for, even if it had really kind of like negative and like sinister connotations as well. So yeah, there there was just a lot, there was a lot going on like a young teenage girl to try and make sense of you know <laughs> <laughs> definitely and there's would you mind telling us about that moment in the book you'd been away and lived in America for I think a couple of years you come back to Dublin and there was this instant in a pub that kind of sparked years of disordered eating you describe it very well tell us about that moment because it's it's kind of shocking but it's also and even though there's a there's obviously a huge racial element to it I think it's something that a lot of young women will be familiar with a moment when somebody says something and it can actually just send you off in a direction that that has ramifications for years. Yeah. So I really want to like, um, I just really want to um, make the point that it wasn't that comment that, um, that, uh, that was responsible for like, for what happened, but it was like the catalyst, but I, th- yeah, yeah, it was the catalyst, but I think um, having the kind of relationship that I had with food and with body image and with my weight was like, definitely like a long time coming and was very comparable to the same relationship that a lot of my friends had with food and with their weight who were white you know yeah um but with me yeah so I'd been in America and I'd been in like a almost entirely black environment where um there wasn't the expectation that um there wasn't actually the same shame around bodies in terms of there wasn't the same expectation that women needed to be as skinny as possible and in actual fact definitely like a a curvier figure was more the beauty standard but at the same time I think kind of irrespective of your of your body type there just wasn't the same the same expectation that you that you have to kind of like starve yourself into into um into kind of insignificance. So I came back from that environment um, with a, I guess I just felt like, um, I just felt more relaxed about, um, about my body and about, and about how I looked. 
And um, within like a day, I think I went out either that night or like the next night and I was in a bar in town and I got, and I had actually, the thing is I had actually put on quite a bit of weight there, but I hadn't even really realized it because it just wasn't like, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't like an issue there. Um, but yeah, I soon, I soon, I soon had it like, I soon had it pointed out to me. Um, so I was in this bar in town and this guy like pushed past me and he was like, get out of my way, like you fat F and N word. Um, or yeah. And I was just like, I just remember that, like, cause it was like, so, so visceral. Like it really felt like I'd been, it felt like I'd been like hit or punched or something. And, um, I actually remember thinking, I was called like the N word, like so much growing up, but that had kind of lost its, that had kind of lost its impact by, by that stage. I was just a bit like, I was quite desensitized to that kind of language, but it was the combination of that word with fat. The two together just made me feel like, just like really, 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 really bad about myself. Um, and I would say that was a catalyst. I remember thinking, well, I can't control like the, I can't control being called um, those kind of like racist terms, but I guess I can, I can control the fat. And I'm just, I was just like, I can't, I can't, this, this can't be like what people are saying. So I would say that was the catalyst for then what followed, which was kind of like years of very rigorously policed eating, which I guess, yeah, I would now have the language to describe as like, you know, disordered eating. And I became, I became very, very thin. And the world did, the world did respond to me differently as a thinner person, for sure. So you're rewarded with the, with the good comments and being told that, well done, you're doing the right thing. And that was the kind of messages you got back. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a, like one of the things I write about in the book is like, as a woman, kind of whatever you're doing, it is, um, it's criticized and it's whatever you're doing, it's kind of, you're kind of told you're doing the wrong, you're doing the wrong thing. So on one hand, there are quote unquote um, rewards, but then on the other hand, you know, there are people would be like, you know, people love to like speculate about like why someone is very thin with kind of like a faux concern, but that is often just kind of like bitching. <laughs> yeah. Um. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. so interesting reading your book and talking to you about this subject because I growing up would have been called fat a lot and ostensibly probably you weren't necessarily fat you maybe just coming back from America you had a bit you were carrying a bit more weight than you'd had before you left whereas I was sort of a bigger 
slightly bigger. I mean, I'm bigger now, but when I was a kid, just bigger maybe than other people. And it, it's funny how, because um, your bo- your book is all about sort of being rebellious and unruly and sort of not conforming or or how, how do we not conform to these things? And I think subconsciously I went a bit like, almost like fuck is I'm just going to do what I want and I'm not going to do that and kind of I'm not I'm not trying to make myself a hero but it was almost like I suppose there's two ways you can go you can go the way where I'm going to police myself now and I'm going to never be called that again or you're going to lean into it and say well you know I'm going to be called things anyway and I'm just going to enjoy my food and I'm going to see what happens and I'm not 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 saying I didn't diet and of course I've been through all of that as well went through phases of that but there's almost there's a sort of a power in 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 sort of saying I'm actually not going to physically conform to what you're telling me to do and I'm not saying I had that in my head as a you know this is me doing that I'm just looking back now and thinking I think there was I am a bit of a rebellious person so there's a slight kind of you know what I'm actually not doing that kind of thing so it's interesting how it can work both ways isn't it yeah Roshi and I actually like I I love that and (laughs) (laughs) well I'm not trying to make myself a hero because I'm I did do the Weight Watchers and I did do the all the things that you probably did as well you know no but I, I do love it and I think it's good for people to hear that. And I do relate to it. Um, not about the not about the weight, but like I do relate to it about like I remember like growing up and being like, you know, um, people trying to make me feel ashamed about about being black. Um, and my reaction to that was to I just became kind of like I became like more interested in that part of my heritage and developed like a kind of a, a deeper sense of a deeper sense of pride in it. So it had like it actually had like the opposite effect. Yeah. But I do think for me, like with the it was like I think the the relationship between race and um body shape and like weight is probably like a bit too complicated for it was definitely like the combination of it being like a racial slur and it being about my weight. It was like the, 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 the intersection of those, of those, of those two things gave it like a, a weight and a, and a complexity that was different to being called one or the, I mean, it wouldn't have been great if being called the N <laughs> and being called five, both of those things alone are enough, but it was definitely like the combination of the two together. It kind of like, amplified the racism of it. Yeah. I don't know if you saw uh, recently Cliff Richard on the This Morning <laughs> Show. <laughs> I mean, I just think, it, you know, that his. He, so I just tell everyone who maybe didn't hear it. Cliff Richard talking about how he had a chance back in the day to get a picture with Elvis. But at the time, Elvis was quite overweight. And Cliff Richard turned down the chance to meet. He was telling Alison Hammond, who is herself a beautiful, larger woman, about how the fact that he turned down the chance to get a photo with Elvis because he was fat and he didn't want that photo on his refrigerator door. And it would have been terrible. And Alison handled it so beautifully just saying no wonder you won't, won't invite me around to your house but he made such a show of himself but it's really amazing how even now that it's possible to talk about that subject like fast being bad or shameful is still is still a taboo we have you know a thing that we're kind of still doing but the great thing was the reaction to what Cliff Richard said everyone was appalled yeah and I think a, I think he seemed like a relic from like another age <laughs> yeah. like you know what I mean because that was the kind of way discourse was Certainly still when when we were growing up, do you know what I mean? And I think because he's from that kind of era, he has yeah. he, he hasn't he hasn't done the work or he hasn't got the money. But he also looks like somebody who themselves might have a might have internalized fat phobia, you know? Okay. 
completely. I don't think he even realises. I would love to be a fly on the wall with his friends telling him why people are going so mad about what he said because I'm sure he's just like, but, you know, I don't really understand. Like, I'm sure he just doesn't get it at I all. I wonder what know? his own relationship to his own weight is. You know, that's that's what I was thinking when I was watching. Well, I I hope he's all right, but I hope maybe he's having a little bit of a learning moment. But I somehow doubt it. I think he's certain, <laughs> past a certain age, maybe. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Zoomification and us looking at ourselves all the time. And there's a fascinating statistic you quote in the book about the global cosmetic surgery market. Uh, it was valued at 55 billion in 2022 and it's going to grow to 57 billion. I mean, people are now doing things to their faces and even you can see I mean, someone was talking about this the other day in work. Uh, teenagers going to school now where you can visibly see that they're getting fillers in their lips so that they're having... And we're talking about 15, 16-year-olds. It's becoming such a normal thing, which is actually quite, I think, scary and sad. And I wonder, is there is there any point in... You know, is there anything we can do about it? Or is this, is this a trend thing that's going to come back around again? What do you think yourself? Because... It just seems very sad to me that that that's happening so young now and it's so normalised and so mainstream. So what I'm trying to do at Disobedient Bodies is really like transform or offer like an alternative paradigm for how we how we think about beauty, how we think about what constitutes beauty. And one of the arguments I make is that um, so we're, we're told that like kind of the the oppressive kind of painful um, comparative characteristics of beauty culture come from, you know, like come from advertising and come from like unrealistic beauty standards in the media and social media. And um, obviously those things have like a huge impact, but there is something far more deeply rooted in, um, in kind of like Western discourse and by extension, what has now become like a globalized beauty culture that I'll get into in a moment. But before I do, I just want to say, I feel like the solution isn't solely to make, so the the current framework as it exists, I think the solutions that were given about how we make things better, like for young people or for people who are excluded, is to kind of keep the same framework, but to excel within it, to make ourselves um, kind of conform as much as we can to the beauty standard um, under the illusion of, oh, well, it's fe- it's a type of feminism. It's a type of choice. Like I have the autonomy to make myself look this way, to do these procedures, and I can make myself look better. I can excel under this current system. That's one of the solutions offered to us. And then the other, so this kind of, yeah, this kind of choice, choice feminism under like in, within kind of consumer culture, which I would argue is not in, in, in fact feminism at all. Um, uh, or we keep the current kind of understanding of beauty, but we just make it more, we just make it more diverse. We just bring more bodies into the, we just bring more types of people into the mix. And while that in in and of itself isn't like isn't like a bad thing, when I when I was growing up, I wouldn't see people that kind of like looked like a version of me really, you know, being kind of like held up as um held up as kind of like beautiful women in the way that I in the way that I see today. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it doesn't go far enough in actually helping us understand, interrogate, and transform this deep seated um kind of 
self-loathing that we have about bodies in Western discourse that goes back as far as Plato. It's something that, you know, that's kind of like within Western philosophy um, that is like kind of further um, enshrined through um, the, the, kind of the, the Cartesian binaries of Rene Descartes. It doesn't engage with any of that. I, I can explain it better in, a, in a, or more fully in a moment, but it also doesn't, it doesn't engage with the fact that a society that judges women um, on their appearance, far more so than it does men, um, because men aren't judged on their appearance to the in any way to the degree that women are. A society that values and judges women on the external, on their physicality, on their appearance, to the degree that ours does, is a society that sees women as subordinate to men. So until we we understand like why that is we can't really come up with any solutions beyond those two that I mentioned you know about excelling in, under this system or just kind of keep, keeping the same framework in place but just like making it like making it like a little bit more more diverse in this way that is very like actually superficial and just kind of like trend based you know so for instance we had like body positivity but it wasn't like a real and that's not a bad thing but it it isn't it isn't um it doesn't go deep enough into kind of like uprooting and transforming those negative ideas we have about bodies you know in western discourse all it all it kind of does is like say oh well for this season or for these few years this type of body is uh is is in but then it it just like the pendulum just swings and you know so i guess there was a there was a little bit of a sh there was a shift i guess with millennials in terms of there being more inclusive body types um that were being you know kind of represented but that wasn't far that we could evidence that that wasn't far reaching was the fact that we're seeing the reemergence and the redominance of skinniness very like aggressively reasserting itself and I think, like I, I write about the drug um, Ozempic. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of other ones now yeah, as well. They're exactly. coming all on stream, and it's like, oh great, there's a way to fix that thing that we pretended was okay, but actually we don't really believe is okay. We never, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It was performative, and it was kind of like it was superficial. It wasn't getting to the root of the issue, you know. Um, so, what can we do for young people? I think we really, yeah, I think we need to like. We need to come up with solutions beyond, yeah, just try and like, just try and excel under, under the kind of like current, current rules. Um, and I feel like I, I looked, I saw a picture of myself the other day. I actually posted it on social media, um, where I'm probably like in my late teens and like my face is like very, very round. It's like a very different shape to, to what it is now. And, um, obviously my face was going to, change in lots of ways that I couldn't have known. You just have to kind of like let the process like occur naturally. But if I'd started cutting bits out of it and like injecting bits into it, like I never would have, I don't know, it just, it, it, it and I, I was so insecure and so obsessed with my, with my appearance that I probably would have been a prime candidate to be like what you're, what you're describing, you know, and I'm just so, I'm so thankful that this wasn't the setting when I was when I was that age. Mm. And I I do, I really do feel 
for for young women particularly, you know, in this moment. But it's also interesting as well how much like when we were growing up, like I feel like for guys, there really wasn't that much pressure like on how they looked. Um, but there's and now so, there is so much more in terms of like their bodies, in terms of everything. Do you know what I mean? So mm. I think that it's it, it's gone. Um, it's expanded. I think it does still like affect girls and women like most dramatically. But I think it's really expanding its reach and really like affecting so- young men as well. In the last bit of our conversations, we we need to wrap up in a moment. We talk about deeper solutions, but even just about the unruliness or the disobedience, are there things that women of any age can do? I mean, you speak about a hair, shaving your hair under your armpits or not, you know, not doing that. That's kind of like, it can be quite a small thing, but in another way, it's quite powerful because you write about the reaction to people, people's reactions to you not shaving and your own feeling about yourself. I mean, are, is it good to experiment with these things and just figure yourself out, see what it feels like for you to to not shave your legs, to not shave under your arms and, and see how that dis- disobedience, I'm putting it in inverted commas, you know, feels yeah, I I absolutely think so. Like, so I feel for me, um, I come to like a place of like kind of like greater freedom and comfort, comfort and kind of like like confidence and power in myself. Where when I push myself to do things that once would have been unimaginable to me, but I push myself to to make decisions about my appearance that actually like make me feel uncomfortable. But from that vantage point, I can then go on to decide what quote unquote decisions I make. Because I'm not making decisions. I'm just kind of uncritically reproducing things that I've been conditioned to do versus what I genuinely want to do for myself. So yeah, with with my when I stopped straightening my hair and cut all my hair off and just had a short afro, it made me think about like that. That was like. I didn't feel comfortable doing that, but I felt like, you know, compelled to, to do it. And I'm now like more than a decade later, I'm so happy um, that I that, that that I did that. But it made me start thinking about hair generally more. And I start I started shaving before I even really needed to, because that was just not that anyone needs to shave, but I started shaving my legs before there was even there wasn't even really hair on them. Um And I just always did it like, you know, unthinkingly. So I stopped shaving, removing any hair from my body. And then for like about after about a year, I was just like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to continue with this. I'm going to have hairy armpits. I'm going to start shaving my legs again. And with that, I knew that I was perfectly comfortable being out in the world having hairy legs. I just spent a year doing it. But I was just like, I feel like for me myself, I would rather have smoother legs. But I feel like that's even like a it's a it's still like a, a. a personal choice and that like I wear skirts most of the time and I just prefer my legs feeling smooth. It's like a tactile thing, but I've started to do it with makeup as well. Um, And I think that has developed kind of with um, the writing of this book. So as somebody who like, you know, hid behind heavy makeup for many, many years and could, could have thought of little worse than the world seeing my face with, 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 with no makeup on, um, to somebody that I guess got to the point where they didn't wear makeup most days, but still, if I was doing something like this, if I was doing like a podcast, if I was doing an event, I would definitely like, I would always be, I'd always be wearing makeup. And, um, yeah, I've started, um, I've really started kind of challenging that. So I'm not, not wearing any makeup now. Um, I have done like big events where, where I'm just not, simply not wearing any makeup. And I remember the first one I did, I felt I had to explain 
um, <laughs> why I wasn't wearing makeup. And I was just like, oh gosh, I wonder when I'll get to the point where I can do this without having to give this big preamble, you know, to justify why, um, why, I, why I look like this. But by the second event, I just, I, I forgot to even explain. So I think again, and also, and, and the, you know, the world didn't stop turning on its axis. People weren't like, oh my God, look at like, people weren't horrified and shocked. Like, it re- like it was grand. I'm grand. Like it's, we're, we're like, it's fine, you know? So um, I, I feel like it's different for everyone, but I think I would urge people, I would encourage people to think about like what would work for them, what they can do to maybe just try and like challenge like all like these ways that we've been that we've been conditioned that we're often not even necessarily like cognizant of and how we can kind of like yeah resist resist Mm. that and I think you, your your book is a brilliant way to sort of look at those things and how we can do beauty differently. What is beauty? What what do we really mean by that? And have we been looking at it in the completely wrong way? And how do we get out of it? There's so many interesting things in this book. So Emma, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. And I hope you come back on again. I know you've lots of projects in the mix, including a new Guardian column. Well done. Thank you so much. That's great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks, Vivian Roisin. That was Emma Dabry there and Disobedient Bodies is out now. It's a short but really interesting and thought-provoking read. If you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please do leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast as it really makes a difference to us. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. That's it for me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.